Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with a global multi-stakeholder community representing national and local governments, international policymakers, civil society, NGOs, the ICT industry, as well as other relevant organizations and institutes. And I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Marietje Schaken. Marietje, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Nice to see you yeah. again. Now, for those people who do not know who Marietje is, she is a politician, a former MEP, member of the European Parliament, and has been named Europe's most wired politician by the Wall Street Journal, and Politico named her the ultimate digital MEP. Uh, today, you're a member of the Global Commission on Stability in Cyberspace, International Policy Director at Stanford University uh, uh, Cyber Policy Center, and President of the Cyber Peace Institute based out of Geneva. And you even find time to write regular columns uh, in newspapers, including the Financial Times. So again, Marietje, welcome to the show and thank you for taking the time in your busy schedule. Now, I'd like to cover with you your thoughts on how to develop a global digital policy. And um, the basic question is, is that possible in, the, in the, the, the times we live in at the moment? The fundamental question, can we really develop a global digital policy? Well, everything is possible, but if we look at politics today, there's a lot of division and there's also fundamentally different political ideas about what the role of the internet and other technologies should really be. So for example, in Europe, uh, there tends to be more of a rights-based approach uh, where there's more and more eye for the public interest, for the need to defend democracy, to update antitrust rules and to make sure that new technologies like AI do not disrupt uh, the foundational principles of our open societies. And so if you look at that European view and compare it to, let's say, the way in which China and the Communist Party and authorities there look at technology, they see it more as an instrument, uh, as an extension of the state's power. And so uh, the, the use of technology is much more top down. It is used to uh, have a good grip on society. And um, some of the uh, data gathering, for example, happens in contexts like uh, the repression of minorities, the Uyghur minority, that would not be acceptable uh, in, in democratic societies. So the question is, yes, uh, we can look globally, but on the basis of shared principles. And I think that there is a big task for the democratic countries, including the United States, which really needs to step up mm -hmm. when it comes to a governing technology and not just letting the market take care of everything to work together towards a shared democratic model across the world. And so, yes, it would be helpful if the US and the EU could work together, but countries like Japan, Australia, hopefully India uh, would be really important to join as well as other countries in the global South because the, competition, uh, the battle, as some would call it, for which model dominates a more authoritarian or a more democratic model is, is ongoing. And the last word has not been said about how that can be solved. No, so, so true. Uh, so, so what you're describing is more or less, uh, we need to form a coalition of the willing. Absolutely. I mean, for those of us who've walked around uh, a little bit in the internet governance world, this dream of an open internet that would sort of break through 
those political barriers and restrictions for people who are unfortunately live in uh, authoritarian or otherwise repressive states was a beautiful dream. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, and I think maybe because it was so beautiful, it also distracted or made people blind to the hard real political world that we live in. And so while uh, democratic governments still hoped that just by letting innovations and technology grow, uh, that freedoms would be gained and that positive benefits would be experienced by all. The um, more forceful states, repressive states, authoritarian states started to really put up uh, boundaries. And so whenever people talk about the open internet, I'm afraid that this is uh, a chapter that's been closed. And the question is now, are we going to continue to look back with nostalgia or are we going to face the reality and put up a good alternative vis-a-vis um, -vis the authoritarian or techno-authoritarian type way of dealing with technology? And I think that that is the task before all democracies now. And the only chance they have to be successful on a global scale is by collaborating. Yeah, because you, 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 in your story, you, you remind me of what happened a couple of years ago, the Arabic Spring, where we were very optimistic that because of the social media, we actually could bring democracy to the world. Uh, and what you're, uh, I'm hearing you say is we were too optimistic uh, to think that that's going to be reality. The harsh reality is not. It hasn't brought us that yet. Well, the problem and the big lesson learned from the Arab uprisings which I was very involved with as a member of European Parliament, trying to formulate a stronger, uh, more effective response from the EU, not so much to focus on the technology, but to focus on the democracy. And I think that that is where the mistake was made, that there was a lot of hope. Remember headlines uh, of a, a Twitter revolution, a Facebook revolution, and so on and so forth, uh, not recognizing what the actual uh, battle for these people in the streets was about. It was about justice and end to corruption. It was about human rights and it was about a fair chance, um, you know, for their generation, uh, as opposed to these um, uh, dictatorial, corrupt, uh, repressive leaders. And so what, what should have happened is to really put democracy first. And I honestly think that that is still the task before us not to expect magic from the technologies or not to expect only good outcomes from the technologies, but really to put what we care about most, the foundations of our freedoms and rights first. Okay. Now, so far you've, in my view, uh, we've addressed just two of the stakeholders in this global discussion, uh, the democratic and the non-democratic governments, but there are much more stakeholders which we need to bring at the table. Uh, mm -hmm. foremost, I think the people providing the technology, they should be part of that discussion. What's your view on that? How should we get them involved? Well, I think that they are at the table or sometimes mm -hmm. they are creating their own tables. Um, if you look at the, the companies, the big yeah. tech companies, they have uh, undoubtedly become geopolitical players of their own. Mm -hmm. uh, they make values choices all the time. You know, are they going to uh, operate in a country where the state can demand access to data? Are they going to conform their terms of use to a censoring a constitution? Uh, you know, what kind of principles are hard lines for them? And we see in practice that there are few, that most big tech companies care most about opening new markets. And because they have this narrative that their products will actually help a freedom agenda, uh, that is, is not... Uh, sufficiently critically assessed. Whereas 
uh, we've seen in the Arab uprisings, but also in many other places, if you put these technologies in a context where people's rights are not protected, where there's no rule of law foundation, uh, the, the harms for people can be much greater. And it is naive to then expect that there are going to be positive outcomes and liberalizing effects. So I think that we have to be careful that companies do not take over uh, the, the governing tables when it comes to questions of how we want to protect rights and freedoms or how we want to think about governance of data and technologies and so on. Okay. Now, you already mentioned a couple of times uh, the people and the people, so the, the public, the, the, the end users of the technology we're talking about. Uh, how do you want them to get a, a seat at the table? Well, in, in democratic societies, essentially the government is a multi-stakeholder environment, right? You have different voices represented, different parties vying for votes, uh, compromise being found between different political parties, processes of consultations and representations through anything from labor unions to civil society organizations. So I think it's important to recognize that democracy is a multi-stakeholder process. But clearly in, in some um, circles like multilateral fora or uh, non-democratic societies, it's much harder for civil society to make its voice heard. Civil society organizations, I think, are often excellent uh, representatives of the public good, the public interest, society at large, or, or piece of it, you know, digital rights or non-discrimination or uh, environmental protection or, you know, issues like that. And so keeping the space where civil society actors can operate safely and freely is crucial. And it is a broader agenda than just uh, tech governance, but it's, it's very important nevertheless. I also think there needs to be more of a discussion about how, how digital governance, digital rights, NGOs can be, become or uh, stay truly independent uh, is, is a discussion that really needs to be taken on because big tech is spending a lot of money on civil society organizations. And those that I know are you know, doing, doing their very best to stay independent nevertheless and not to be captured, but there's always a risk. Uh, and so the same goes for academic institutions where there's a lot of money from tech companies. How do you make sure that there's true independence to also have scrutiny and independent scrutiny of all the developments that we're talking about? Okay, now we need to get all these people at the table. Uh, we need uh, all these stakeholders. Uh, we need to have that discussion. We need to work on solutions. Uh, that is quite a time consuming and often tedious process. Uh, Unfortunately, in my observation, uh, we have a time issue. Can we afford uh, to follow that path, given how fast technology is moving at the, at the moment? You know, I think you know the so-called multi-stakeholder uh, governance process better than I do. You've walked around in those circles for a long time. Um, I do worry that there's too much process and too little result, uh, and that by continuing on about the process, multi-stakeholder process, for some, it can easily be sold as a result. So to say, well, look, yes, here we are with everybody at the table. And that's not what you want. You really need to organize and mobilize behind certain goals. Uh, and those goals can be very different, you know, access to the, for the people who are not yet online and who would greatly benefit from it, making sure that there's not just rollout of infrastructure, but also rights protections to go along with it. 
um, thinking about how civil society can, can truly stay uh, focused on representing the public interest, minority interests, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there is a lot that needs to be done. And uh, I think that is probably the task uh, before everyone in the so-called multi-stakeholder process now to, to take a big step into clarifying the purpose and, and using that urgency that you're describing uh, to come to a shared agenda of action and results and not just a shared agenda of discussion. And could that common purpose be, I'm just, there are many you can, uh, uh, you could say go after, but uh, at the moment, are we still, is a global internet, a global World Wide web, is that still desirable? I mean, can it eventually lead, can you envision a scenario where we're going to say, well, we're only going to offer the internet to the coalition of the willing who actually confirm to the standards we all agree on as a coalition and say, well, if you don't want to play according to these rules, then you're, going to, you're not going to be part of that global network anymore. Well, I do think that putting up criteria is very legitimate uh, because there's also risks involved if you don't protect people. Uh, but I, I do think you always want to keep an avenue where uh, individuals who don't have the ability to uh, offer an alternative or choose an alternative in the societies that they live in are not paying the price for, for the governments that are repressing them and are uh, limiting their options of access to information and, and communicating. So um, having criteria, yes, uh, making sure that they do not hurt the people uh, at the sort of uh, bottom of the power pyramid most is something to always be mindful of. No, I, I, I agree. So at the end of the day, it doesn't matter um, how we're going to get there as long as we provide a global internet because we also want we, we want to uh, give everybody that opportunity to uh, be part of it and make use of it for the benefit yeah but but the question remains what is a global internet because there there can be completely different consequences for people going onto the internet uh, finding the same information in a different context and it is something to really think about you know what is the price that people ultimately pay uh, what risks are they exposed to do they have a sense of that you know, there have been there have been many examples during those Arab uprisings, but also uh, examples in more recent times. I'm thinking about the uh, freedom and democracy protesters in Hong Kong, where, for example, in Syria, um, the the Assad government was very, very has been very restrictive for a very long time about the flow of information, uh, what type of expression. Uh, obviously, you know, criticism of the powers that be is not tolerated, and so in a deliberate effort, restrictions on the use of social media were lifted so that civil society actors and, and um, uh, critical students and, and organizers were going to post their criticism online. And it was very easy to then hold them to account, put them in jail, uh, look who was talking to who, how the networks looked and operated. And so on the one hand, you have this desire of very young people to belong to yeah. you know the 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 global community and i can can very much empathize on the other hand they may have exposed themselves to risks that they could not foresee because they thought that you know facebook was facebook and didn't have a good sense of how the surveillance state was also utilizing social media uh, to uh, target and repress and that is still going on until today and i think that there is a responsibility to make sure that we do not just believe that the spread of these 
services, whether it's the mobile phones or access to the internet or the services running over them, are going to be used in the same way uh, as in the best case scenario. I mean, we are both sitting in the Netherlands, or at least that's where we spend a lot of time. Um, and this is a free society. You know, we have our own challenges, but in no way can they be, they be compared to what happens to people in Myanmar, what happens to people in Kenya, what happens to people uh, in China, and so on and so forth, when they end up in a conflict with uh, the government, for example. And so I think, um, that context is really important. So there's obviously the technical layer, uh, there's the services layer, but there's also a political layer yeah. under, over, and uh, next to all these questions that, that we should be realistic about. Fair point. So uh, it's going to take time, but we need to speed up the time. And talking about time, we I have room for two more last questions, uh, topics for you, uh, Marietje, to discuss. Uh, discuss. Mm -hmm. First of all, uh, the Digital Services Act. Uh, Europe is developing a Digital Services Act to uh, rebalance uh, the responsibility of users, platforms, and the public authorities. Now, it's based on European values. It's predominantly aimed at Europe. But could it have the same effect as GDPR had a couple of years ago that actually is going to have a global impact? What's your take you know, on that? Yeah, so the Digital Services Act really tries to be more proactive about what the responsibilities mainly of the big social media and advertising platforms should be. So instead of having a discussion afterwards, uh, having more proactive articulation of what they should do, and I think that that's a step in the right direction. It's, it's a law that is still uh, in the process of being finalized, so it's hard to say something about it because we don't know what the final result is, but I think the intention is good. And it fits in the broader picture, as you mentioned, of this sort of rights and values-based approach that, that the European Commission is taking. Um, so I hope it can actually lead to, uh, lead to better outcomes, uh, where it is more clear what speech is legal or illegal, what happens when there's harmful speech that is not technically speaking illegal, but that could still cause a lot of harm, like conspiracy theories or massive disinformation or lies about the democratic process that can hurt people's rights, or uh, discriminatory uh, practices. These are the types of, of um, expression, if you want to call it that, uh, that we cannot just look at through the lens of free speech. Free speech is, is incredibly important uh, in Europe, in the United States, and, and many people can only dream of having their speech protected. But there's also other rights that matter, you know, freedom from discrimination or public safety, uh, public health. We've just had big lessons learned in the in the pandemic. So um, in that sense, uh, we should also look at the Digital Services Act as part of a bigger legislative puzzle where different parts are coming together just, just as the Digital Markets Act, to name one other one, where the Digital Services Act and the Digital markets act are kind of paired together. Okay, so let's hope for the best, and hopefully it's going to have the same impact. And uh, indeed, I I'm hoping for the same positive effect as you just described. Uh, one final question, if I may: um, mm -hmm. What would your advice be to the Institute for Accountability in a Digital Age? Um, given what we're doing, we're trying to connect all these global stakeholders together, uh, get them to listen to each other, uh, help seek solutions for accountability in the digital age. So any takeaway for the audience you'd like to uh, give us? Well, for me, accountability is one of the 
key topics in this huge question of how to make sure that key principles that we cherish uh, are preserved. Uh, the rule of law has a lot to do with accountability. Uh, human rights have a lot to do with accountability. But it would help to articulate very clearly accountability for whom, you know, through what process and um, uh, with what aim. So, for example, liability of companies is a very different type of accountability than accountability of a state or a criminal group that wages a cyber attack. And so they both contribute to accountability, but in different ways. And I think the discussion is now mature enough to get closer to the how, uh, you know, and, and also uh, take, take into consideration that very political debate that we've talked about for, for the past uh, 20 minutes. Because the reason why there is not very sophisticated accountability and attribution mechanisms yet is obviously because there are, there are many, 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 many people and also governments that think they benefit more from ambiguity, from not having clarity of international law, not knowing exactly what responsible state behavior looks like, not having clear articulations of liability for software companies, for example. And so anyone who cares about accountability is up against big giants big forces and big politics. So it's important to uh, have a very clear sense of how to achieve bits and pieces of the accountability puzzle. Uh, so true, Marietje, is indeed we've moved from the why to the how. So that's going to be the next, we'll say, quest uh, to find um, solutions to all those questions which fall under the how question. And yeah. uh, I want to thank you very much for your time and uh, setting us straight. And uh, uh, well, thank you for all the work so far and sharing your knowledge. Likewise, thank you and all the best with your mission. It's very, very important. Thank you.